So good to be with you on the Lord's Day to celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ together as God's people. It's, um, we wait uh, for his timely coming. Um, I'm so glad to um, hear different stories of um, just, uh, just good news and good reports, um, hearing that Jim is doing well um, and recovering well. Um, praise God for that. Isn't that an answered prayer? Um, so happy that um, I know many of us have been laboring for him in prayer, um, considering him, and, and just other things kind of going on in our lives and just kind of see how God is working in us. Um, it's just so wonderful to be here with you this morning. Um, I feel like I'm about to um, preach a sermon. I was reflecting on this a little bit, and I um, posted this online, but, and I wasn't, I wasn't saying this to get you to come. <laughs> Um, but I feel like I'm about to preach a sermon that um, might be one of the most important sermons I've ever preached as a pastor. And I don't say that lightly or to sound dramatic. Um, I've preached a lot of important sermons, I think, over the years. Um, sermons that have to do with the resurrection of Christ. Without the resurrection, we would not resurrect from the dead. Without, I've preached many times, numerous times in the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus and his return for sinners. Um, and if it weren't for this, um, we would be hopelessly lost. What's more important than that? Um, but I approach a subject that I think um, really is, um, as for Christians, probably the most important. And I want to remind you what um, Joe articulated already and read from in our scripture text this morning. Um, in verse 16 of Ephesians chapter 3. Notice this uh, curious prayer that Paul prays for God's people, for the church. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. <clears throat> uh, this morning, this sermon really is for Christians. I, I go to um, a lot of like preaching conferences and church planting, and how do you, how do you lead your church? And you get this plethora of advice, and spectrum of advice, and most of the time they, they tell you, um, and you might agree or disagree with this advice, but they tell you, preach to unbelieving people. Don't preach to believing people. If you want to grow your church, you've got to preach to people who, who don't know Jesus. Because if you don't do that, they, don't, they, they won't know what you're talking about, and they won't come back. <laughs> right? So th there's a certain, I think, wisdom to that. So I'm going to break that rule this morning. Um, I've always tried to, to handle preaching in such a way as it would encourage the Christian and also bring a lost person to faith in Jesus. I try to do both in my sermons. I don't know how successful I am, but, but um, that's, that has always been my aim. But this morning, this sermon is distinctly for Christians. You might not yet be a Christian and wonder what use you have. You might think that, you know, well, I might as well just leave then if um, you have nothing to say to me. But friend, um, if you are not yet a Christian, I want you to know that this sermon is about what it means to be a Christian. And if there's any curiosity in you at all, whatsoever, about what this Christianity thing is and what it means for us as believers in Jesus Christ, if you don't know Jesus yet and you wonder what that is, I urge you to stick around. The, the text that we're, we just read in Ephesians I think really should be fascinating to your Christian ears if you are a Christian. He asks God in a prayer that Christ might dwell in our hearts. Now, if any of you know any doctrine at all as a Christian, you know that we already have that. Christians already have Christ dwelling in their hearts, don't we? I mean, if any of you have been Christians for any amount of years, you probably have read this in the Bible already, heard it preached, that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 
God takes residence in your heart. Just like in the Old Testament, God's presence would be in the temple. When you put faith in Jesus, God's presence comes to you. So why is he praying for something that we already have? It's like asking God that he would give me feet. I have feet already. (laughs) Right? Christ does dwell in our hearts. Scripture teaches this over and over again. At the moment of faith, our bodies are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Our bodies are made temples. But it seems to suggest this passage that there is a life of power for the Christian that is not automatic. That it needs to be worked for. I I can't get around any understanding of this text outside of that. If Paul is praying that our hearts would be filled with all the fullness of Christ as Christians, that means to me that there's a possibility that they won't be. That our experience, that though Jesus' spirit might be in us, our consciousness of it is waning. It's gray. You see what I mean? So he is there, we just don't know it. You see, and this is what I think this verse is about. There's a power that's not constant. That Though all Christians at some point, friends, if you've come to faith in Christ... You'll, you'll, you would have experienced this Ephesians chapter 3 text at some point in your life where you know that the love of God was shed abroad in your hearts. That Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted in love, may have power together with the Lord's holy pe- spirit people to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with, to the measure of the fullness of God. If you, if you have genuinely come to saving faith in Jesus, that experience has happened to you at some point in your life. But it didn't stay, did it? There's a life and a power that is not constant. It requires something of us. <clears throat> Ephesians 1 brings this out again. Right, so Paul is praying in Ephesians chapter 3. He says the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... Now remember, he's talking to Christians in this letter. He's not talking to unbelieving people. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Don't we already have that? <laughs> right? He's praying for things we already have. And that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened. They're already... I'm not blind anymore. I see... Why is he asking for this? So that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of the inheritance of the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. To know it. You see, friends, if you're a Christian, you might know that, but do you know it? Do you know it in your gut? Is it there? Is it in your bones? You see what I mean? You see the difference? So we might say, I do know the hope of this calling. My heart is enlightened. So what's going on here? Friends, a Christian is described in these passages. Now, hear this. Imagine this. Imagine this kind of Christian life. Okay? Because this is the word of God. This is what the Bible says, head toward this Christian friend. This is what is descriptive of what God intends for us when he saves us. I want you to be strengthened with power through your spirit in your inner man. I want your hearts and affections filled with Jesus. I want you to be rooted and established in divine love. I want you to have power with all of God's people to live in, to understand, to grasp the length and height and depth of his love. To know that love that surpasses knowledge in your inner person, deep in your bones. You see, that's that's the call of the Christian life. A Christian is filled with the fullness of God. A Christian is filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Of God. That's the vision of your conversion and mine. It's a divine life. But we're chronically afraid. 
We're touchy and impatient. We're driven for material gain. We're tired. We're discouraged and grumpy. Right? That's the Christianity I live. Let's just be honest. And I'm not talking about you. Can I just confess to you, to my shame, your pastor lives like this at times. That's me. We're jealous, we covet, we fight, we're easily offended. We roll our internal eyes at each other for doing the wrong things or aggravating us. And we barely have any friendships at all in our life where we delight in the work of Jesus Christ. That's what's happened. What's going on, friends? Because that's not the vision of the spiritual life of Scripture. That's not why God saved you and me. He saved you and I to transform us, to do something far greater in our hearts and lives. 10, oh, maybe 15 or 20, maybe even five years ago, I knew that kind of vibrant life and love. But it sort of slipped away. And you know what? It's all because of that church that I went to. We, we might say, that friend that betrayed me. You know, you know whose fault it is? It's my husband's. Because he said he loved God and he left me. He changed his mind. And that's, that's what happened. And then maybe we chill out a little from our anger and our accusatory type of actions. And then we just start settle, settling into the apathy. And to just a, a regular type of, well, I suppose when Paul prayed that, he had, it, had in mind other people, other Christians. So we just kind of mosey on along. We don't look to each other or to his word or to prayer with the same kind of life or affection anymore. It just kind of is. And that is not the vision of the kind of life that God has saved us to, friends. Towns are not revived with that kind of gray Christianity. Your families are not awakened with that kind of gray Christianity. Cultures have never been moved like that. You see, when I, I, I'm kind of a student of church history, and what I know to be true in Scripture and in church history is that revival doesn't just happen. Lots of people don't just get saved because one guy shows up and preaches the gospel. You know, what, you know when that happens normally in church history? It's when groups of God's people start to realize that they have lived without him and they can't do that anymore. That's when it happens. That's when you get divine life. And you know what happens when we get divine life? Other people do too. It just happens. It's, way that, it's, it's the way God's spirit works. It's the way he moves. So what's on the line is more than just our personal soul peace, our contentment, our love and passions and affections stirred for God. Our culture's on the line. Our families are on the line. Our personal lives are on the line. There is a vibrant, heavenly, and divine life that God has prepared for us and willed for us right there for the taking. And we need to grasp hold of it. You see, we need that divine life. So what do we do about it? What do we do? Okay. <clears throat> Let's go back to our text. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 through 12. If you've been here, I'll give you a synopsis if you haven't. But 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, for the most part, is grammatically indicative. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm going to start talking about grammar. Um, how many people like grammar? One? I got one. Yeah, okay. Heather, we got two. Okay. Get a book called Eats, Shoots, and Leaves. You'll love it. It's really funny. It's about grammar. Um, anyway, verses 1 through 12 are in the indicative mood. The, in, moods in Greek and in English and in another language represent uh, verbal um, action 
or timing, things like this. So that has to do with verbs. Indicative mood in Greek is much like in English. So mood in languages expresses like the certain functions of verbs. An indicative verb um, is very simply stating a fact. Um, Kyle preached a sermon. That's a past indicative verb. Right? That's the mood of the verb in that sentence. Kyle preached a sermon. It's stating a fact. Now, um, there also can be st uh, stated opinions. That's what a subjunctive verb is. Kyle should stop talking about grammar. <laughs> right? That's subjunctive. How about the imperative mood? That's a command. Kyle, stop talking about grammar. Right? So you understand like the different forms of mood. Well, in verses 1 through 12, if you look, if you look at all the verbs um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 12, you have, have a lot of statements of facts, right? Um, that Jesus has died for us, that we have an inheritance in heaven waiting for us. There's all these statements of facts. The gospel has given us a living hope. There's all these just kind of statements. Now, what's common in New Testament letters is this kind of like doctrinal explanation of what God through Christ has done for us. That's usually how the letter writers begin. But then there's like this hinge. There's this door, a turning. Because now it puts it, it looks directly into the eyes of the reader and the hearer and says, okay, here's what we have to do with this. Here's what it spurs us on to. Here's what it means for us in our lives. You see that? So these aren't just stated facts. These are real and living propositions that mean something, that should mean something for us right now. Does that make sense? So there's an imperative. It's not uncommon, as I said, for New Testament letters to do this. So in verses 1 through 12, we see the hope of heaven. We see an inheritance reserved for us because of the death and resurrection of Christ. We see a, the promise of this rest of heaven as the result of the death of Jesus in the place of sinners. We talked about this at length for weeks. What does heaven's rest mean? What's coming for us at the return of Jesus? We talked about all this um, quite extensively. But now Peter moves from proposition to application. It's not enough that heaven is the hope for God's people. It's got to mean something for us right now. If we're to live out the life of Christ now, there's a work to do. There's an imperative. There's a command. And we see three in the verse that we read in Peter. Be alert, be sober, and be set. Be alert, be sober, and be set. So that's what I want to talk about. If there is a divine life missing in your heart, can I urge you to consider these three words? Be alert, be sober, and be set. So let's talk about what it means to be alert. To be alert in Scripture in this context is to have a mind that is ready for action. It's a mind that's awake. It's a mind that's thinking, right? It's not sleeping. That's what it means to be alert. The, riddle, the, the literal tr translation is to gird up your loins. Now, we don't talk like that anymore. But what that means is if you're running, don't run in a robe, right? You might trip over the, the, the belt hanging. You want to get rid of things that are going to trip you up if you're in a race. So to gird up your loins, you remember that, that movie, um, Crocodile Dundee? How many people are as old as I am and have seen Crocodile Dundee? Well, at the very beginning, of the very end of the very first movie, she's chasing him. She realizes that she loves this Aussie, and she needs to go get him before he leaves her forever on the subway in New York. Remember this? So yeah. the music's going, and she's running, and what does she do? Ladies, what does she do, ladies? She takes her heels off. She girds up her loins because her heels are getting in the way of her objective to go get her man, right? Friends, do you know how many things in our lives get in the way of experiencing the living presence and love of Jesus Christ? And yet we keep our heels on, we keep our sin on, we keep our laziness on, we don't cry out to God daily in prayer. The solutions are so simple, yet we still persist in not doing them. We love money more than God. We love relationships more than Christ. They're more important to us. We are not alert to the things that get in the way of a seated affection for Jesus Christ and his divine life that he offers you and I. 
You see, because the bottom line is sometimes the things that trip us up, we like more. We want them more. God is not all in all to us. He's not, let's just be honest, he's not worth it. He's not worth the sacrifice. So we sleep in, we sleep out. Oh, we do everything and anything we know we shouldn't be because God just isn't worth it. Let's just be honest. That's what's happening. He's not worth it. He's not worth our trust. His love isn't better. So we're not alert. We're not aware. Has anyone ever driven with me or Bill Henricks? I'm dissing myself in the same, Patty has. Um, I'm dissing myself in the same example, so he can't get mad at me for this. So if you're talking, if I'm driving or Bill's driving, and you're talking to me and we're trying to get somewhere, don't do it. <laughs> I'll pass the same street three times after I've turned around. Like, you've got to stop talking to me because I'm going to pass the exit. How many people are like that? Like, I'm really bad like that, though. I'll do it very, very easily. There was a time, actually, that my wife and I were in um, Western Mass, and we were talking. We were going over a, a, one of those really old, really cool covered bridges, and um, we were talking, going over the bridge, and sh she's talking to me, and I'm kind of immersed in the conversation, and I literally hit the guardrail going over this thing because I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> and she screamed, and I got mad at her for screaming, and then I apologized. But that's what happens. My mind in those instances are not alert. There's something else more important to me than driving. So I stop paying attention and I end up hitting things. I'm not tying up the long garments in my run. Because doing this, did you know, doing this requires discipline. It requires an, an awareness of what, of what trips us up. And we also need to be aware of what's more important, don't we? We have to have priorities. An alert mind is a prioritized mind. It knows what the greatest goal is, but then it also knows what gets in the way. You see? That's what it means to have an alert mind. You're, you're consciously and intentionally thinking about these things and being directed by them. So we need discipline. A spiritually alert mind knows what it needs and it also knows what gets in the way. It sees the problem. Any casual reading of the Old Testament is going to reveal how frequently Israel fell into periods of spiritual stagnation, what I called gray earlier, the gray Christian life. That stagnation led to idol worship and then all sorts of sin. If you've read the Old Testament, you know what I'm talking about. This happened over and over and over again in Joshua and Judges to Israel, all throughout the kings. All, this just repeatedly happens. So they become stagnant, they start worshiping idols, and then all of a sudden they start falling into all these sinful practices. God has told them not to live this way, they decided to live that way anyway. And then finally it concludes with some kind of crisis, some kind of trial that's put on na the nation of Israel corporately. They wind up under the weight of, of this crisis or this inward emptiness. And repeatedly, corporately, what happens is they cry out to God. They begin to cry out to God. And God hears their cry. He is merciful and he restores them. Isn't that the cycle of the Old Testament? Don't you see that happening? Friend, don't you see that that's the same cycle that happens to us? That's exactly what happens to us. The main problem they became alert to, what was the problem? Famine, some invading army? No. That was not the problem. What they realized is that because they began to worship other gods, God was not with them. See? He wasn't there. They were without him. Now, I know some of you might theologically object to that, but would you just stop objecting for a second and listen? <laughs> Like, I know God is everywhere all the time. I know that when he saves us, we're always saved. But there is a presence, an abiding presence, which, which means that there's a worship experience, a love exchange. That's gone. And that's what they realize they need, more than cucumbers, and more than honey, and more than peace. 
So the main problem, they become alert to it, was their need for the presence of Yahweh in their midst, and they didn't have it. They didn't have it in their hearts, in their minds, or in their culture. They had fallen apart. And when they began to drift, they were no longer alert to their need for him anymore. They started thinking that that what they needed was the business of life. They started becoming lazy. The temptation of sin came in. There was this constant battling with their mind, a loss of concentration and priority. They were not alert. And some some scholars have noted this, some scholars of of church history and and the dynamics of revival in church history on culture. um, They say that there is one thing that it all has in common, that when this happens in a church, in a culture, in a community, there's one thing that revival always begins with. They come together, then the people cried out to the Lord. They realized they were naked without God, and that was the problem. It wasn't their boss. It wasn't their tragedy. It wasn't their church. It wasn't their family. It's that God was not in the camp. He wasn't there. And that's what they needed more than anything. Their minds were alert. We all have alert minds this morning. All of us. Even I do. Because you know when my money starts running out, I know it. It's alert, baby. Right? When a relationship is in hot water... You know, I'm kind of a people pleaser. I don't know if you know about this bit with me. So if someone's not happy with me, it really weighs on me, and i got to be careful for that. But that's just true about me. right? So if someone's not happy with me, I know it, and it bothers me. I'm alert to it. So we all, we, and we all have our little things, areas of life. We take precautions all the time in many ways because we do have alert minds. But Paul and Peter pray for something unique. A, spe- a special sens- sensitivity, not to how much money is in our bank account or whether our friends still like us, but a special sensitivity of our conscious minds that our greatest destination is God's presence. That what I need is for him to like me, not for you to like me. You see? That's what Kyle wants to preach to himself. I need the applause of heaven, the divine king, the heavenly father to affirm me and love me. You see? That's what I need. I need the God who owns the cattle on the thousand hills that even if I don't have any money to pay for my bills tomorrow, that one day I'll wake up in glory and have all my needs met by the good God in heaven, the creator of all things. Isn't that true? Amen? So I need this special, that's what Paul prays for, this sensitivity to our greatest need. The church, just like Israel, needs to be alert to the same. It needs to be alert to the same. I think about this corporately together as a local church. You know, what we need is, is not a different location or more chairs or, or cooler outreach activities. We need the divine life richly living in our hearts. And you know what we could be doing? We could be living in a dusty, musty, spider-filled basement and people will come because people are attracted to the life of God in your heart. That's what will happen. You see, what the church does is we don't, oftentimes we don't have that, so we start getting worldly. How can I get people in here, not because they're attracted to the divine life of the Holy Spirit lived out, but because we just, we don't have that. So what do we do when we start tricking people? We start coming up with little games and little tricks to get people to come, and we get worldly. We get, we get involved with all sorts of like commercial, commercialism and all these different things. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pay attention to kind of suit like, people's needs to make places comfortable because we want them to come back. But that's not the ultimate thing. That's what, not what they need most. Friends, that's why we don't have church at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's because we want people to come. But when we start thinking that all of our kind of worldly little tricks is what's going to get people saved, we're wrong. I'm wrong. I'm deceived. I've crossed a line. Because it's only the Holy Spirit of God, the divine life in us that does that. So we need to be alert to the same thing. We need alert minds. The church, just like Israel, needs this same type of transformation, this collective calling out, God, we need you. 
Then the people cried out to the Lord. You know that's what happened at Pentecost? You know who was in the room at Pentecost? You guys remember Pentecost, right? Speaking in tongues, healing people, a thousand people get saved. Well, you know, you know who those people were? They were the ones that just ran away from Jesus. They, they were the ones that denied him. They were the ones that lived in basically in unfaith and sin. They ran away. They realized what they did. And you know what they started doing? They came together in a room and cried out to God. Forgive us. We need you. Fill us. And he did. And he did. And they began to speak with power, Scripture says, because they had the divine life in them. And everyone thought they were crazy and drunk. Remember? What's going on here? And then Peter stands up and preaches, and what, 5,000 people that day came to know Jesus Christ? Because what matters is our heart. The divine life in our heart, where is it? We need to be alert to the same, to our greatest need. We need to gather in one place like these people and cry out to God, not for a bigger church and not for more money, but for Him, for His love in us, supernaturally empowering us to know Him. Right? That's what we need. The other stuff will just come. You know, it's not the other person's fault. It's not. And I know some of us and some of you have been terribly abused. But your heart, it's not their fault. Because at any point you can take that heart to your Savior and say, what I need is you. Not, I didn't need to avoid that problem. What I need is you to transform it, to heal it, to put it back together. And as long as we keep it from him to do that, then it becomes our fault. Can you imagine? My jealousy, my anger, my lust, my fears, my anxieties, my languishings. Oh, friends, this comes from a heart that has been away from God and worshiping idols. That's the bottom line. Like Israel and like the church at Pentecost, I need to repent. I need to confess. I need to say, God, I need your face. I need your presence. I need you to pass before me. That's what I need. I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what I need. And you know, you know, he shows up anywhere and with any group of Christians you're united to. Doesn't matter what the name of the church is on the building. Doesn't matter. Does it matter if they're old or young or black or white or rich or poor? You see, that's the church. We need to be alert and we need to be sober. That's a good one. Okay. To be sober in Scripture means to be self-controlled. Okay? If someone is intoxicated, um, and if you've ever been intoxicated, you'll know what happens to you physically, biologically, is it just removes inhibition, doesn't it? It removes self-control. Things um, that normally you would not do, you do, right? Can I get an amen? Right? Things you normally would not do, you just start doing them like no one's watching. I could give some examples, but I won't. My personal life. Um, something else sorts of takes over. It takes over the will. But Peter is not talking about an intoxication that is the result of some kind of substance like alcohol or drugs. He's not, saying, he's not talking to a bunch of drunk Christians that drink too much. He's talking about a spiritual sobriety. He's talking about the kind of intoxication that is the result of forgetting God. Okay, so let's talk about that for a moment. He's talking about a mind that cannot think clearly because it is not in God's presence. It is not spiritually energized. A mind that is not in God's presence only can think, only can process with your emotion or with whatever it is that you want in life, with your will. A worldly fixation with some kind of possession, materialism. That is, that is an intoxicated mind. You start to believe that your greatest happiness is found somewhere else outside of God's camp. And you go after it. And God is an addendum 
he's there, he's in the room, because you believe in him, but you're really going after something else. You see, your, your mind is tricked. It's intoxicated. It's similar to not being alert, right? We're not seeking first the kingdom of God. It's a mind that fears man and not God. It's a mind that loves the world more than God's presence, you see? It is a mind with a seated affection, something material, and therefore it's intoxicated. Have you ever heard the expression love drunk? You guys know what I mean, right? You've all been love drunk a little in your life. You meet some girl, and oh, she's so pretty, and she looked at me with a twinkle in her eye. Nothing else matters. Everything else, just, it just doesn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter what job I have or where I go to school or what my family thinks. Just does it because she likes me. You're love drunk. Right? And as you grow up and that girl breaks your heart, you stop getting love drunk, but you start getting drunk on other things like power. How about that one? Power lust. Have you heard that expression? Or uh, maybe you've had a little gold fever in your life. Right? Something, the shine wears off of something. But you need to worship. You need to go after something. So when the shine wears off here, you just pursue it somewhere else. And we're intoxicated. We start to believe. Oh, you know, and you know what despair is? It's the opposite. Despair, depression, is you are convinced that nothing can satisfy you. That's what depression is. Oh, there, you know, gold doesn't work. Money doesn't work. Money, girls, relationships, none of it works. So now I've got nothing. You see, that's despair. That's depression. What's the point to life? It's basically the opposite of these things, isn't it? But friends, can I suggest to you that both of those things come from an idolatry. We have started to worship something other than God. We have started to believe that what we need most is not Him. The things that we worship direct our choices, they intoxicate our judgment, and they rule your emotions. And that's a huge one. They rule your emotions. And I know the things that kind of make me, you know, metaphorically love drunk. If it's not going well, oh man, I'm done emotionally. I'm all over. Why do you think scripture says, set your hope fully on the appearing of Christ and the grace that he brings to you? You want to know why? Because that's what you need. That's all you need. In that is love, in that is safety, in that is everything you've ever been looking for. No, nothing else can promise, promise you that perfectly. So look to Christ, look to his appearing, set your hope on that. And the reason you need to, I'm getting ahead of myself, but the reason you need to set your hope on that is because you so quickly and we so easily forget it as Christians. But we'll get to that more in a second. <clears throat> the spiritually alive person is marked differently as we see those um, in, in, account, in those accounts of divine renewal, okay? If you're no longer able to see the real problem in the real solution because you're intoxicated with some, um, some lust, we need to become spiritually alive, and that marks us differently. And we, and we can see this in those accounts of divine renewal. When we look at Scripture and we see what happens in the process how does someone get out of that and become aware of what they really need and what they should be going after? That's the process of renewal that we see in Scripture. There's a deep conviction of sin brought on by some crisis. You see, so when Moses shows up and they built the, the golden calf, you remember this? And he's like, what are you guys doing? And he smashes the, the Ten Commandments. What do they do? They don't say, Moses, get lost. This is our God. No, they realize he is right. This is what we've done. They don't say stay hard in their sin. They call it out. They recognize what they've done wrong. So there's, there's a deep conviction of sin that the crisis has brought out. Then they cried out to God in the, in his pre, um, for his presence. They say, God, what we need is not, is not cucumbers or, or you know, honey and milk and all these things that we've been after. We need you. So they cry out to God. And what they get 
all the time, what we see in Scripture is they get an assurance of God's grace and love. They know that even though they're guilty, that they're forgiven and accepted because of, because of God's benevolence. They, and they don't doubt it. That's what happens when, re, when renewal happens to you. It's, it's like this double-edged sword. You realize you're guilty and wrong. There, there comes like conviction and, and sorrow and grief in your heart for that. But there's this flip side to it where you recognize that God loves you in spite of it. And that he's accepting you and forgiving you. So there's this grief and joy all at the same time. And then there's an access to his presence. He shows up. And finally, there's a creation of a rich and compassionate and transformative community. When that happens together, there is a rich community that is the result. A real community. To have, a hearts, to have hearts alert and sober requires us to action. And there's got to be a clear understanding that our hearts, even as Christians, John Calvin said, are idol-making factories. You are going to default to worshiping anything but God. That's what that means, even as a Christian. So if you're not alert to that every day, you're going to start worshiping another God. You will. You need to be alert to it. And you need to recognize that your heart is an idol-making factory. We tend to drift towards anything but God. That's just the reality of the spiritual life. We easily forget our greatest need. We drift back toward different passions and we become intoxicated by them. That's the process. So the Christian is to have a sober mind, an alert mind, ready to battle every day. Ready to answer lies about God. Ready to answer sin and temptation. Ready to answer lies about yourself and Jesus. It's an active mind that is constantly battling incorrect um, information about yourself and about God. If you don't do that, your narrative takes over. You believe a lie and you ride that wave to the day you die. Friends, get off the wave. There's a better one. Okay? Answer it with truth. Answer it with what God says. So where does this come from? Where, how do we sober up? You say, I, I'm with you, man and I need this divine life, what do I do about it? Well, it's really simple. I already kind of said it. This is number three. We need to set our hope. Let's talk about what that means. Every day, if you eat dinner, you set your table. You get it ready. You're preparing yourself to eat food. Aren't you? Don't you do that? Why? Why do we do that? Well, I'll die if I don't eat food. I need food. And I know I need food, so I set it up. I go shopping. I do all these different things because I cannot deprive myself of food. I can't do it. If I do do it, I'll die. And if you don't see the spiritual life in the exact same way, you're going to become a gray Christian. You're just going to show up every now and then at church. That's good enough. And the rest of my life is just kind of ugh, aggravated and touchy. It's not what's described in Scripture. So we need to set our minds. Be vigilant. Be ready. Because you're constantly going to default back to worshiping something else besides your good God. And so am I. So what do we need to do? We need to seek God's face. That's the first thing. Every day, every single day, we need to seek God's presence. Now I know that's vague and general. And What does that mean and how do you do that? We'll get to that in a moment. But let me just say that very clearly and very simply. All of us as Christians need to start our every single day saying, God, what I need most today is you. I need to set the table. I need to realize that if I don't drink him and eat him, I'm dead. That's what's going to happen. You see, instead, we set the table for our problems. I lost this. I want that. I'm afraid of losing this or that. And we set our minds for that. And we, we busy ourselves in, in the day going after those types of things rather than saying, God, in you, I lose nothing. In you, I get everything. All of my sins are forgiven, so that stupid thing I did yesterday is gone. I'm loved. I'm your son. I'm protected. I'm safe. I'm setting up my mind. You see what I'm saying? We'll get to this more. In a, but I need to seek God's face. One pastor said it like this. We can understand truth simply. And if you, if you understand truth simply, it is unsavory. If all you do is understand what is true, that doesn't taste good. 
right? But when we understand truth as good, as well as true, it becomes delightful. It becomes savory. You see, some, a lot of us know what the truth is, but it doesn't seem good to us. What seems good is what we want. So we need to learn that it's good. It's not enough to simply know about God, to know about him. But we need to know God. Do you see the difference? It's not enough to just know about God, but we need to know him. For this love to journey from my head to my heart, to transform my affections, you see? It's the desire to see him like Moses desired, to have all his goodness be known. In Exodus chapter 33, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people, and go to the land I promise. Go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. This, this happened just after they built the idol. God was like, I'm going to kill all of them. And Moses says, don't do that. Remember your promise. And he says, okay, I'm going to send them, but I'm not coming. When the people listened to their reaction, they didn't say, fine, I don't, we don't really want you anyway. We just want the cucumbers. Well, this is what they said. When the people heard this, these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any, any ornaments. They realized they could have it all, but without God, it wasn't worth it. Here the pe people become alert to their deepest need, and that's God's abiding presence and affection to be with him, to be near him, to have him, to have him opened up to us and in us and all around us. That's what we need. And we can be like Paul and Peter and all these people in prison cells, completely happy, crying out, rejoicing to God because we have him. You see? They, these people built another God because Yahweh was taking too long. They wanted some things in life. And God was just taking too long. So they said, okay, we'll just make another God. They wanted safety and leisure and family. They wanted milk and honey more than Yahweh. So God said, okay, I'm going to give you all these things, but you don't get me. And sadly, that's how we live our lives. We live the Christian life like this. We just kind of want stuff, and God is just Santa. Give me stuff. Are you not going to give me stuff? Oh, now I'm mad at you. Right? This is what happens. How dare you? Why can't you give me stuff? This is, this, is, this is the process. So we struggle and twist and strive. And we might know that God is out there somewhere, but oh, we don't know him. See, we don't know his love, how deep it is and how high it is and how long it is. But then something happens in the, in the story. God says, I'm not coming, and Moses begins to pray. And you know what Moses says to God? The people began to pray with Moses. And you know what? Their hearts started to change. And, and this is what they said. They said, God, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us. We'd rather die with you here in the wilderness than be there with all the things in the world without you. Something happened. And that something is what I'm talking about. It needs to happen to me, to you, or we're dead. This church is dead. It's just a place where we show up and shake each other's hands. Oh, friends, that's not the kind of church that I want. That's not the kind of Christian that I want to be. Okay? They set their hearts on God's face. And you know what happened? They started praying differently. They started, you, you, their prayers become transformed. This is very interesting. A set heart seeks God's face, but a set heart prays different. Let me explain to you what I mean. As we're seeking God's face daily, our prayers begin to change. We begin to pray more earnestly for God's spirit in our lives. You see, this is how we get our affections stirred up again. This is how God's presence begins to take over in our lives again. Because we begin to ask for different things. 
this isn't to say that it's wrong to ask for material things, but just to say that we, begin fo- be, we become focused on something much more important. Prayers for the Spirit include things like growth and holiness through God's Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 4.3. A deeper participation in God's nature. Second, these are all prayers, by the way. 2 Peter 1.4. Having God's love in our hearts, not just in our heads, Romans 5.5. 5. Having the light of God's face on us, Psalm 16.11. Having fellowship, intimacy, and union with God, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. We start praying like that. And you know what? God obliges. He says every time, okay, I'm coming. You ready? There are stories in scripture where people begin to pray like this. And what's really fascinating is as, as, as they start to grow in their faith and God shows up, there are points where they're actually praying like, God, stop. Stop showing up so much. I'm going to die. Right? I've read this in people's biographies like John Wesley and George Whitfield. God's presence was so real and powerful. His love was so overwhelming. They felt like, I'm going to die. This is going to kill me. Right? But we pray, so often we pray for for physical needs, don't we? And Jonathan Edwards made an an incredible comment, and this is kind of lengthy, so please follow this. He talks about two kinds of prayers. Prayers for material gain and prayers for God's spirit. And he says this. We often pray for the former, by and large, material. Fix this, heal that type of thing. When they are in want of these temporal blessings, they are much more concerned about their wants than about their wants of the Spirit. Did you hear that? You're much more concerned about the thing that you want than, than wanting Jesus, than wanting his Spirit, right? And are far more assiduous in seeking them. They don't need any preaching to stir them up to take thorough care to obtain those outward things. Whenever they begin to even a little want them, even if they think that they'll never get them, so it's not that they don't have them, but they might lose them, right? If they just foresee the danger of this loss, how will they bestir themselves? And if they begin to suffer for want of these things, how much more do they make of their sufferings? But when their souls languish for want of spiritual blessing, when it be a time of great scarcity and even famine on that account, how little are they affected with this? They seem to be quiet about it. You see what he's saying? When God has prayed to bestow the Spirit, if we, in other words, if we do pray for God to give the Spirit, he says it's more a matter of form than anything else. In other words, we have to pray for that because God said to, so let's just get through that part and get to the stuff we really want to pray for. Right? That's what he's saying there. And this is what he says. <clears throat> when God is prayed to, um, excuse me, if rain be withheld and there be a drought, or if there be sickness, everybody is concerned. And how we cry out in prayer for rain or healing. What did God call you to, he says? Had God nothing better to bestow on you when he made you his children than a little money or land? That you seem so much to behave yourselves as if you thought this, is, this was your chief good. I am bold to say that God is now offering the blessing of his Holy Spirit to you, to this town. And I am bold to say that it's ours if we simply ask. Do you see that? He's not trying to diss people for praying for their sick kids. There's nothing wrong with that. What he's saying is that what we need deep in our guts is the love of Christ, the Spirit of God. We need his face. You see? Now, watch this. Moses, back to Moses, the nerve of this guy. He says, God... Don't send us if you're not going to come with us. And God obliges. He says, okay, I'll go with you. And then, <laughs> it's not done. Moses says, okay. Now, God, you ready? Show me your glory. <sighs> the nerve. Get, like, God was just about to kill all the Israelites. So God said, okay, I won't do that. But I'm not going with you. Moses says, no, come with us. Okay, I'll come with you. 
All right, God, God, I'm not done. Show yourself to me. Pass before me. Tell me your name. Show me your love. That's not enough. I want more. You see, and friends, if there's anything that I'm encouraging you to this morning, it's that. Don't be content with 25% of God or 30 or 40 or 50. Keep going after more. What happened to Moses here, listen to God's response, and then the Lord said, how dare you? No. He says, okay, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. God showed up. Moses got to see him. And might I suggest to you this morning that that's what you have access to if you want it and if you ask for it. You know what's going to happen after that? It's not that you won't care about different things that go wrong. You'll still cry and you'll still mourn. Oh, but you'll have life. You'll have life and not despair and not hopelessness. That's the fruit of revival, friends. It starts there. It happens when we begin to seek the Spirit and ask for the Spirit. When we start to ask for God's love instead of someone else's love. It's when we start asking that God's truth would become savory to us and not just knowledge in our heads. You see? It happens when we corporately seek Him together and that becomes our priority. And then it spreads. That's what happens. Our family starts to get saved. And if anyone has been saved for a long period of time in this room, you know that's true. You know it's true. I know it's That's what happened to me. It's what happened to you. So why are we content to not live like that? Go after him. You just need to ask. Go after him every day. Ask, God, I need your spirit today. I need your face today. I don't need my problem solved today. I need you today. I need you to teach me what it's like, what your love is. You see, friends, we need to daily confer, finally. If we're going to have a set mind, we need to have a conference with ourselves every day. Why is my soul in despair, David prayed? You say, you're nuts. Well, David did this. He had a conference. He had a talk with himself every single day. And he answered his lies. That's not true. Why are you in despair, O my soul? There are enemies all about me, he says. He's talking to himself. He's preaching to himself. And we need the habit of daily soliloquy, of daily conferencing with us with the word of God. And then that transfers to prayer and meditation. God, we, and we start talking to God. You're my father, not my, not my earthly father. You're my father. You saved me by your mercy. You name it. You name the promise. You set your hope on the grace to be brought to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. Friends, if you do that, the life of God, the presence of God, will be present. I said this is the mo- probably the most important sermon I've ever preached, and this is why. Because if we don't do this, we're dead. I'm dead. I don't have a real vibrant, happy, heavenly, spiritual, divine life in me. I'm just going through the world like everyone else. And that's not what God has called us to. He's called us to something richer and deeper and fuller. So you might be a guest here. You're visiting from another church and you might never come back. But friends, the word of God endures forever. This is for you. This isn't just for our church. This is for the Christian, the one who proclaims faith in Jesus Christ. So can I encourage you, friends, that if you know Christ by faith, do you know him? Do you really know him? Do you set the table? Have you become content not to? Do you want to know know him? Then go after him. Daily confer. Set your hope. Be alert. He's right there. Oh, can I admonish you, church? Can we come together? Friends, can we come together and pray together? I'm not trying to guilt anyone. I know some people have different schedules. But can we start realizing that just like Israel and just like Pentecost, we need to come together and cry out to God together. Oh, and we do it every Wednesday night. Would you come? Not to simply talk about your sprained ankle. And that's fine. We'll pray for your sprained ankle. But will you come with us and ask God for him? Would you come and pray with us? 
Because like I said, we can manufacture this. We can put a commercial on TV, and we can get more people in here. But is that what we want? Is that how we want to grow this thing? Oh, come, cry out to God with us. Pray for his presence and his spirit. It's worth it. Come. Let's not be gray. Amen? Let's pray. We're going to go right to communion because I went way too long. And um, so I, I, I do apologize.